Man, grab your Bibles and go with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Just as uh, Caleb reminded you earlier, I want to make sure that you are uh, praying for us for Freedom uh, Week and Weekend. This is a huge ministry event uh, for our students and for our church as a whole. We don't believe that our student ministry is the next generation of the church. We believe they are the church right now. And so I want to ask you to be in prayer for that. Also encourage all of you uh, to invite friends to join us next Sunday because it's going to be a weekend of equipping for parents and families around freedom. And then I have an opportunity to share with you uh, the vision we believe God has given us for the future of our church. And so I'm going to ask you just to be praying for me and for our church leadership as uh, we move into a new season of what we think God has for us next. And I could not be more excited uh, about that. As you just saw from that sermon bumper, we are continuing our series, Tell Me the Story of Jesus. We began talking through the character of Christ, then we started uh, studying some of the great conversations of Jesus. Last week, we began to investigate some of the confrontations that Jesus has had. And we'll finish this spring uh, examining the council. What are the wise uh, teachings of Jesus that you and I still need to glean and to learn from uh, uh, today. I hope this series has been a blessing and an encouragement to all of you. I've had a great time uh, uh, walking through it with you. Uh, You know, I've heard it said before that a picture uh, is worth a thousand words. We all know the significance of a powerful photograph. When you see that image, it can just evoke such a strong sense of emotion in us. Depending on what it is that the photograph holds and the story that it tells, you know, pictures are truly powerful. I'll give you a a few examples to illustrate that. If you were alive uh, at September the 11th, 2001, you remember when those terrorists flew planes into the buildings and uh, into the Pentagon and crashed the third into the field in Pennsylvania. But do you remember late that afternoon at ground zero, first responders had gone in to try to uh, rescue people and and, uh, search for survivors and uh, some firefighters in New York raised a flag right in the middle of the rubble. And and that evening, and it was kind of a a sense of... uh, of really of unity for us. It was kind of a rallying cry, like a rallying point. And I I just remember watching that unfold uh, on the news. And it still evokes in me this powerful emotion of all of the weightiness of the events that transpired that day. Here's a personal one I'll show you. This is the uh, birth of my uh, uh, number four. This is Hannah. And uh, when Hannah was born, she was just a few more than, a little more than five pounds. Uh, she spent some time in the NICU, got under five pounds. So I don't have a giant hand. My daughter was very small, okay? But I remember uh, going to the NICU and getting to see her and hold her. And that was just a few days prior to her being uh, able to be uh, discharged. But it just evokes such powerful emotion for me when I see that image of my little girl. And and then this last one, this is an unusual one. This is a a picture from war-torn Ukraine. And obviously it's a playground right in the center of a building that has been destroyed from all of the tragedy of the war. And here's why this image that I discovered this week evokes such a powerful response for me. It's because I believe this is a picture of the Christian life. Here's what I mean. Often, Christians believe that the Christian life is an easy one. It's like a playground. That it's all fun, that it's only good, and that it's never a place of struggle or strain. But I believe that the Christian life is a battlefield. We are a people who are under the attack of an enemy, and we are all engaged in a spiritual 
war. After all, that is why the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, and in Ephesians chapter 6, he tells the church, put on the full armor of God. Now, why would a person need to wear armor unless that person is expected to go into a battle? Paul tells the church that you're not battling against flesh and blood, but rulers and the authorities, principalities, uh, uh, powers over uh, cosmic forces of this present darkness, those who have control over the evil uh, in the heavenly places. So we are a people who are at war. The Christian life is not a playground. It's a battlefield. And so we need to be a people who are prepared and equipped according to the truth of God's word on how it is that we are called to fight. Turn to your neighbor and say, we're in a war. When Paul wrote to his younger brother Timothy in the faith, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he tells his younger brother, this apprentice of the Apostle Paul's, that he needs to be a man who's prepared to fight the good fight of faith. Listen to the words of Paul. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. He's talking about sin. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which made you uh, about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, as followers of Jesus Christ who are inevitably engaged in spiritual warfare, there are a couple of fundamental truths about this battle that you and I must not only understand, but that we need to fully embrace if we're going to fight this fight with integrity, if we're going to fight this fight to actually win. And so family, if you're a note taker today, I want you to write a lot of things down. I want you to draw on the scriptures so that we can be reminded that we are a people that God has equipped in a position to fight this fight so that we win. The first truth we have to understand is this, that uh, our commander, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us has already achieved the ultimate victory for us on Calvary's cross. Jesus, our commander, has achieved the victory. So the outcome has been determined. And he has achieved that on Calvary's cross. Colossians chapter 2 verse 15 says, He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus achieved our victory on our behalf on Calvary's cross. The outcome of this spiritual warfare that inevitably the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be involved has been determined. Jesus already won. Here's the second truth. In addition to winning the war for us, our commander-in-chief is fighting alongside of us while you and I continue to battle against the present darkness on this earth. The Bible tells us that Jesus is with us, right beside us, in the middle of our fight. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. Divine power. After all, think about what Jesus tells his church in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I command you. And then Jesus says this, and behold, I'm going to be with you until the end of the age. So our commander has achieved our victory, but the commander is also standing at our side while you and I continue to wage this war that he's won. As it relates to the spiritual battle of temptation, which leads us into sin, 
Jesus is right by our side. Caleb mentioned this a moment ago, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So it's obvious we're in a spiritual battle. But it's also obvious that our commander-in-chief has achieved the victory on our behalf. And yet, his love is so great that he is standing beside us while you and I continue to wage this war. And what we're going to see in the passage today is we're going to learn from Jesus how it is we are called to fight. How it is we can fight from a position of victory instead of worried as to whether or not we will suffer defeat. You with me? So Pastor A.B. Simpson famously said this when talking about Christians who are battling against temptation that leads to sin. He said, temptation exercises our faith and teaches us to pray. It's like a military drill and a taste of battle to the young soldier. It puts us under fire and prepares us to exercise our weapons and prove their potency. It shows us the recourse of Christ and the preciousness of the promises of God. Every victory gives us new confidence in our victorious leader and new courage for the next onslaught of the foe. I love what Protestant reformer Martin Luther said when he was talking about Christians battling temptation that leads to sin. He said this, one Christian who has been tempted is worth a thousand who haven't. So here's what I would tell you at the outset of this message. You ready? Jesus is not wasting your war. He's using it. He's using it. He's not wasting your battle. He's not wasting your struggle. He is using it. He's using it to make you into a better soldier, to make you into someone who is more prepared and more equipped to fight inevitably the next time when the enemy shows up and tries to draw you in temptation that leads to sin. So Matthew chapter 4, we're going to see how it is that Jesus teaches us to fight. Now, a bit of context here before we jump into the text is uh, in Matthew chapter 3, I would argue it's one of the most powerful moments in all of the recorded scriptures. It is the baptism of Jesus. And so we know this moment, God the Father is there, Jesus is in the water with John the Baptist, and the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove. Supernatural moment to be certain. And on the heels of that, the Bible says that the Spirit of God then drives Jesus into the wilderness. And I'm going to show you something in verse 1. I'm going to show you that this movement of Jesus into the wilderness has a specific purpose so that you and I might glean and learn something significant even today. Read with me. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse number 1. If you're there, say, I got it. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now listen, if you ever wonder whether or not there's accident or happenstance or coincidence as to the nature of spiritual warfare, don't. Because this has a purpose. God actually sends the Spirit to descend upon Jesus, anoint him and inaugurate him for his earthly ministry. Then the Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness and that too has a purpose so that Jesus can be tempted so that we might learn who are likewise going to be tempted what it should look like for us to fight. So when I tell you he's not wasting your war, Jesus is the greatest proof that that is true because he shows us how to fight. Verse 2, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and he said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, 
If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their heads they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. The devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. I'm going to show you a few things today in this passage of scripture that I think and hope will be an encouragement and even more so an equipping for you as inevitably we're going to be a people who are called upon uh, to fight. I, I want to show you, we're going to study the tactics of the enemy as it relates to how he fights this spiritual war and then we're going to see the tactics of Jesus that he deploys as the mechanism to defend against it. And so we need to pay attention to the tactics that the enemy uses so that we'll know how it is that he's trying to draw us into temptation that might lead to sin. And then we need to see how it is that Jesus has strategy to defend against it. I call these the strategies of Satan and the defense tactics of Christ. And strategy and defense, uh, I mean, strategies and tactics are a good thing. Um, they're not inherently evil. They're necessary. They're helpful. There's uh, times when all of us uh, deploy necessary strategy in our lives for whatever it is that we're finding ourselves needing to do. In fact, every single time the Bales family takes a vacation, there is a great deal of strategy that is involved in that process. Okay? It begins with packing. Okay? I want to just speak to the men in the room. Can I just tell you, is there not a needed strategy to how to pack a car? Can I get a witness? right? So it's a needed strategy and tactic. Now in our house, Mary packs everything in the suitcases. Dad packs every suitcase in the car. That's how the Bales family navigated. And there's a strategy and there's a tactic to all of that. We have to strategize how to distribute humanity. Okay? The Bales family takes two vehicles everywhere we go when we're going to travel for any length of time. So we spread out who's going to ride in whose car. Okay? It's all about the playlist. Okay? Who's going to get to control the radio? That's what it comes down to. So we talk about how to distribute people, in which we have to strategize or where we're going to stop and what the bathroom situation is going to be. It takes us longer uh, to make rest stops and on road trips than maybe it does you. So there's a lot of strategy that we have to deploy. Strategy can be a good thing, and so it's necessary for us to pay attention to the strategy that God's enemy uses against him and that he's certainly using against you and me as well. So let's start with what I would call first the strategy of Satan. This is the tactic of the enemy. Pay attention to this. The first thing he does, it's his timing. It is Satan's timing. Now, I think it's fascinating that the Bible only records three events in history where Satan speaks. And in all three of those events, the what Satan spoke was temptation that might lead someone into sin. I'll remind you. First was in the Garden of Eden when a serpent showed up and he tempted Eve. The second one was when uh, Satan showed up and talked to God for the purposes of tempting Job uh, to rebel against him, right? He had to get God's permission. He says that the only reason Job is devoted to you because you have supernaturally blessed him. And so he's wanting to tempt Job into sin. And the third is right here in Matthew chapter 4 when the enemy shows up and he tempts Jesus. Only three events. But pay attention specifically to the timing of this event, right? What has just happened in Matthew chapter 3? I would argue one of the most spiritually significant moments in the scriptures, certainly in the life and ministry of Jesus. 
right? John the Baptist is on the scene. He's preaching a baptism of repentance. Jesus shows up and submits himself to that in a a symbol of readiness and an understanding that God has prepared him uh, to do this supernatural earthly work. God the Father opens up from heaven and actually speaks and affirms Jesus publicly and said, this is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus. He anoints Jesus. The scriptures say, like a dove. So Jesus has this incredible moment, this spiritual mountaintop, this supernatural blessing. And immediately on the heels of that comes a spiritual battle. That is the timing of the enemy. Pay attention to this, family, because here's what I want to tell you. Sometimes this is talked about as the dove and devil principle. But I would say in the moments of uh, a great victory, we can find ourselves very vulnerable. It is often after we have experienced supernaturally divine blessing that we will find the enemy wants to draw us into a battle. Because this is what he does. This is how uh, the enemy works. Think about the scriptures. Uh, The prophet Elijah. You probably are familiar with the story of Elijah having done battle against the 450 false prophets of Baal. Well, the Bible records that the allegiance of God's people had begun to turn, and they started to worship this foreign god, this Baal idol. And, uh, and so God sends Elijah to go and to have this uh, supernatural spiritual battle against these false prophets. So there's 450 of them, and they engage in their form of worship. And then Elijah uh, calls upon God uh, to call his people back through devotion and allegiance and, and supernatural worship that God deserves. And in that moment, fire falls from heaven and it consumes the altar which was the place of directed worship and it consumes all 450 prophets of Baal and immediately God's people's hearts are turned their devotion is restored and it becomes a supernatural place of worship right what a mountaintop moment for Elijah and then this crazy lady named Jezebel says I'm going to kill you for that and he freaks out And he gets depressed and he runs away and he hides in a cave and his thoughts get so dark that he actually wishes himself dead. Now, now, what a mountaintop moment only to discover this valley of despair. How about King David? King David was enjoying the supernatural blessing of God every time David led his people into war. David was victorious in battle. He was known as a tremendous leader and commander of God's army. And he should have been continuing to lead in this way that God had entrusted him to. But instead, he's back home in the palace and he's enjoying the fruit of God's supernatural blessing. And he looks out from his rooftop and he notices a woman named Bathsheba who is bathing And immediately, he is tempted and he falls victim to sin, right? This is what happens. Oftentimes, immediately on the heels of blessing comes battle. This is my testimony. I'll give you a personal example. Uh, Just a few weeks ago, uh, we had a... uh, incredible staff chapel here at the North Campus and uh, really the most significant one since God had called me here in 2019 and I just felt like we were unified as a ministry team uh, uh, between the leadership of our church and myself and Dr. Graham we just have such a great and grand vision for what we think God wants us to do next and I got to share that cast that vision uh, before our North Campus ministry staff and and to a person every man and woman in that room was so fired up and we worshiped together and we prayed together 
together, and it was just one of those powerful, you've had those moments, right? Just one of those powerful moments where you feel like this God, God shows up there in the room, and we were ready to link arms and charge hell with a water pistol. It was like that kind of moment. You know what I'm talking about? And then that night, just before I went to bed, I had received an email from someone who was attacking me and our church for the way in which we conducted our Christmas Day worship services, saying nasty things. That's what happens, right? I remember that afternoon calling Mary and saying, this was like one of my best days. Like, this is one of the best days I've had at Prestonwood, one of the best days I've had in ministry. We are so unified. We are headed in the right direction. I'm confident that we are doing exactly what we should. And she was so fired up. And it was just one of those days where you couldn't wipe the smile off my face. You know what I mean? And, and then I'm exhausted for all the right reasons and crawl into bed that night. And I make the mistake of checking the notification on my phone. And I had that email right there. But isn't that what the enemy does? Haven't you experienced that? The vulnerability after victory, the battle after blessing, the enemy knows the necessity of timing, and he pays attention to it. Here's the second tactic of the enemy, not only timing, but temptation. Temptation. In fact, there are three separate temptations that Satan uses specifically against Jesus. I think there are three ways he tries to draw us into sin as well, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. The Bible says these temptations, they are actually of the world. The Bible would go elsewhere and say these are of the flesh. This is what he means in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. In other words, uh, these are temptations that the enemy uses to draw out in us something that because of sin runs in contradiction to the things of God. And the enemy knows that. And he's specific about tempting us toward that. I'll give you all three. The first is the physical attacks. The physical attacks. What Satan does in tempting Jesus, who again was in a season of prayer and fasting on the heels of his inauguration into earthly ministry and the anointing of God's Holy Spirit, right? What Satan does right in this moment is he attempts to try to prey upon the physical vulnerability of Jesus. Now, there have been some historically who have tried to speculate that this wasn't as significant a temptation because Jesus is God and therefore his physical appetite wouldn't have been as great. But I just want to remind you what the Bible said. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 2, it said that he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and guess what? And he was hungry. So yes, this was a significant temptation, a physical temptation. Jesus was both fully God and fully man, so he hungered in the way that we hunger. His flesh was real in the ways that ours is real. So when it comes to Satan's strategy to tempt us physically, we need to be a people who have our guard up and understand there are moments when we're vulnerable to be hit, H I. There are moments when you are vulnerable to be hit. And here's what I mean. H-I-T. Hungry, isolated, and tired. There are moments physically when you are more vulnerable to be hit by the enemy. Hungry, isolated, and tired. I can just tell you for both men and women in my pastoral ministry, what I have seen and counseled and heard is that oftentimes sexual integrity, for example, is destroyed when people are isolated and tired. And they're more vulnerable to fall victim to sin. Does that make sense? 
And the enemy knows that. And he's preying upon the physical vulnerabilities that we all have. So when you find yourself traveling for work or your spouse has left for work or your spouse has gone to bed or you're upstairs and your parents are down or wherever it is with you and your phone and you're by yourself and you're tired and you're not thinking as clearly and you're isolated so no one will necessarily know, you need to pay attention. The enemy's aware of that as well. And he would love to attack us and prey upon our physical vulnerability. The second is not only physical attack, but emotional attack. This is 1 John 2, the pride of life. And the second temptation, Satan's tactic is to attack Jesus emotionally. Matthew 4, 5 and 6, the devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God. Now, what's interesting about that is this is not a question as to whether or not... uh, Uh, Jesus is the Son of God. Satan certainly knew what happened in the baptism scene. He knows that the Father had just uh, spoken from heaven and validated the Son on earth. The Spirit had descended on him and anointed him for the earthly ministry that God had entrusted to him. So Satan's not ignorant to that. This is not a, uh, well, you may or may not be. What he's doing is junior high boy, right? He's preying on Jesus' emotions. He's saying, if you're the Son of God, prove it. Right? Like some of the stupidest decisions of my life were when somebody followed up whatever statement they made with, prove it. Okay? I bet you can't cross that creek. I bet you're not, I can't, you can't jump, jump far enough. I'm in my church clothes. Mom said I can't get dirty. I'd say, I knew you couldn't do it. Oh, yeah? And then destroyed a pair of khakis and some dockers. I'm just saying, okay? <laughs> That's what he's doing. He's attempting to prey upon the emotions of Jesus. And, and when he does so, I want you to notice this. He, he uses the scriptures out of context to do it. Right? Have you noticed that the enemy will often take uh, the truth and he will twist it and manipulate it? He is actually drawing on Psalm 91. Likely the Psalm of Moses talks about uh, finding shelter in the Most High, in the shadow of, uh, of God Almighty. So what the idea is here is that for all people who follow God and belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a supernatural protection and blessing and, and shelter And and the enemy is trying to draw upon Jesus as the only recipient of that. And we know that he's manipulating the scriptures because he doesn't even quote them correctly. He takes partial truths. He takes half-truths, and he's twisting them and manipulating them. And he's doing so in an attempt to tempt Jesus into sin. This is what he does. Think about when he showed up on the scene in the Garden of Eden. Don't you think it's interesting that the Bible records that in Genesis chapter 3, and when the serpent slithers up to Eve, the first thing he doesn't say is, hey, what's up, girl? The first thing he says is, did God really say? Like, no introduction, no casual conversation. He didn't warm her up uh, before he just dropped the bomb. He just immediately got her thinking, preying upon her emotion. And the first thing out of his mouth, did God really say you can't eat any of the fruit? None of the trees? You're not supposed to have any of it? Well, of course that's not what God said. But the enemy knows there's a bit of truth because God gave some instruction about what is allowed and what is not allowed. And he takes what little bit of truth and he twists it and manipulates it. Listen, he's doing that to some of you. He's taking bits of truth and he's twisting it. Some of you are listening to the wrong voice. And you need to be reminded that God is truth. He says, Jesus, I am the way and the truth. And the life. And we need to make sure that we're listening to the right voice. He preys on our emotions. Here's the third attack. It's spiritual. Again, 1 John 2. This is the desires, the eyes. When Satan makes his last effort to tempt Jesus, he takes him to the top of a mountain. And apparently, I'm wondering, like, again, it's totally speculative. Is this Mount Everest? 
So did he take Jesus to the tallest point on earth? I'm, I'm curious about that. And because wherever it was, evidently the view was so grand that they could see all the king, all the known kingdoms of the earth at that time. So a pretty expansive view. And he takes him up there. And again, Satan doesn't say, if you will fall down and worship me and devote the entirety of your life to serving me. He says, if you'll just fall down and worship me. And it's singular. Just this once. And here's why that is worth our paying attention. You ready? Because he knows if he can get us the first time, watch this, then it's so much easier. The second and the third and the fourth and the fifth thereafter. You with me? And he says, uh, all the kingdoms of the earth can be yours. Now, the temptation is not the kingdoms. Jesus is God. He knows that God the Father is going to give him all of the kingdoms. The temptation is to shortcut God's plan to do that good work. And that's what he tries to tempt us to do as well. God makes us a promise, and sometimes we get out in front of him, and we think, oh, I appreciate you saying that. Here's how I know I'm going to get it done. You don't believe me? Just remember the story of Abraham and Hagar, right? Abraham and his wife, Sarah, were promised that they would have a child, and through that child, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. About 15 years in, they can't believe that they're still haven't had this baby. And so uh, Sarah says, hey, why don't you take my maidservant and you can have a child with her. And uh, that child will be like ours. And uh, that'll be how we help God fulfill the promise. Listen, if he needed our help, he wouldn't be God. Right? But the enemy attempts to shortcut the plan of God. And he preys upon our spiritual allegiance as he does so. And so we see the strategies of Satan. These are, in fact, the tactics of the enemy. But it's also worth our paying attention to the strategies of Jesus and how he fights back against it. Because this is where I believe we can be a people who are best equipped to battle the inevitable spiritual warfare. It, it, listen, if you follow Jesus, the enemy hates it. If your family is devoted to the things of God, if you are stewarding your children and your resources in light of your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, the enemy is going to battle you. You're in a war. And so we need to pay attention to how Jesus shows us we can fight it, not for victory, but from victory. And he promises he'll be with us the entire time. So the first thing we know as it relates to the tactic of Jesus is his defense was to go on offense. Jesus' defense was to go on offense. I love this because three times when Jesus responded to the enemy's temptation, physical, emotional, and spiritual, what did he say? It is written, it is written, it is written. The way that Jesus fought back is the Apostle Paul tells us that uh, the word of God is the sword of the spirit. And, and Jesus uses the sword not as a weapon of defense, but as a weapon of offense. Jesus goes into battle wielding his sword. He is uh, quoting truth. He is hanging on to what he knows will defeat the lie. In fact, John 8, 44, Satan is the father of lies. And so Jesus wants to make sure that he is combating that with what we absolutely know to be true. I'll, I'll try to illustrate it this way. Um, a few years ago, Jehovah's Witnesses stopped by our house, and they were evangelizing in our neighborhood. And, um, and so my wife, Mary, opens the door, and she's having a lengthy conversation uh, with them. I didn't know who was at the door. And so I just knew that she was talking for a long period of time and having a pleasant dialogue. And, and so after a while, I'm like, golly, who is this? Either come in or go. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, y'all don't think that? Okay, so I, I, I finally, after a while, I, I just was like, I'm going to go see who it is, make sure everything's good. And so I walked to the door, and, uh, and Mary kind of opens it up to make room for me. And I could tell, based on her facial expression, she was like, well, you asked for it. 
And so, I, again, I wanted to have a conversation. I believe that's what God has called each and every one of us to. Always be prepared uh, to make a defense for the hope that you have that is within you, right? So we are called to lovingly engage the world with truth. And so I wanted to try to have an honest dialogue with these friends that had showed up to share what they believe. And uh, here's what I would tell you. I really believe that we need to understand every single time the enemy comes knocking at our door, we need to make sure Jesus is the one that we usher to answer it. Right? Because he's ringing some doorbells in this room. He's knocking on your family's door. He's knocking on mine. And we need to make sure that we're not trying to do our best and make our case, but rather, just like Jesus taught us to, that we allow God to answer the door when the enemy shows up and starts knocking on it. Three times, Jesus says, as it is written, as it is written, as it is written. And so when the enemy knocks on your door, just like he's knocking on mine, we need to make sure Jesus is the one that answers it. You with me? That's how you fight. That's how you fight. That's how you fight like Jesus fought so that we can overcome temptation that would potentially lead us to sin. Here's the second thing we learn about the tactic of Jesus. He stayed close to God, which meant he was far from Satan. I think the reason sometimes we are most vulnerable is because we're on the fringes, and so we're pretty easy to pick off, right? Because we know if we belong to God, we're going to have to fight a battle, but I believe we're best equipped to fight that battle when we're nearest the commander who's already achieved the victory on our behalf. Jesus was close to God. That meant that he was furthest from Satan. The Bible says in James chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, that submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Some of you in this room this morning are losing your battle with temptation. There is habitual and perpetual sin in your life, and you want freedom from it. Here's how you can have it. Submit to God. What does that mean? That means trust in God. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, confess your sins, ask Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, and believe that he is the only way in which that work can be done. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then submit yourself to the truth of his word. Submit to God right? God, you're in charge. Whatever you say, whatever you want, however it is, you want me to do it. I'm yours. I'm yours. I'm going to submit myself to you. And then resist the devil. Again, when he's knocking, let Jesus go answer. So resist him. You don't have to do battle. You're not smart enough. So we're going to let Jesus do that work on our behalf. And then lastly, when you draw near to God, the word is he will draw near to you. He will draw near to you. So I, I think here's, I ask you every Sunday as a part of this series, what are we going to do with Jesus, who is our commander that has earned the victory on our behalf? But I, I've been thinking about it this week. I just believe with all my heart there are some, there are a lot of us who are losing this battle to temptation, and it is, in fact, leading us to sin. And since the war has been won, I believe God wants his people to start fighting like it. I, believe, I, I just believe, I believe he wants us to start waging war knowing that the outcome has been determined. And so that we're going to be a people who fight like Jesus fought. Because Jesus has already won and achieved what we could never earn or provide for ourselves. And so when we put on the armor of God and when inevitably we go into battle against a very real enemy who is trying to trip us up every single day, 
We fight from that victory, not for it. And when the enemy comes knocking, let's let Jesus be the one who answers. Sir, there are some of you who are here in the room and you are not yet born again. Look, you you don't yet have a relationship with God. The reason why you are struggling with temptation and this habitual sin is because you are not equipped to fight it. But if you will confess your sins, he is faithful to forgive us of them and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So the moment that you trust in Jesus for your forgiveness and trust in Jesus as your Lord, the Bible says you're saved. And now you can fight because the victory has been won. There are others in this room. Listen, you're just battling sin. You belong to Jesus, certainly. You gave your life to Christ some time ago. But you're battling this habitual sin. And I believe today is your day of freedom. I believe God wants to break you free today. Again, 1 John 1, 9 was written to the church. It was written to Christians. These are men and women who were already born again and belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. And John tells them, if you'll confess your sins, he is faithful to forgive us of them and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. This is an ongoing work. Martin Luther says the life of a Christian is one is marked by repentance. And so confess that I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling with financial integrity, with personal integrity, with sexual integrity. I'm struggling with gossip and slander. I'm struggling with being the same person in, uh, same person uh, face-to-face as I am online. I'm just struggling with sin. And I want you, Jesus. I want you to help me with this. I want to fight like you fought. The door, there's, it's just knocking all the time, and I want you to start answering. I can't do this on my own. Okay, well, come and pray. Ask God to strengthen you. In Jesus Christ, he has equipped you, and the church will come alongside of you. Some of you decided you saw that uh, a hero in the baptistry this morning, and, and you know that this is the church that God wants you to make your home. So come and join us here at Prestonwood. We're going to be better together. Like, we're doing this thing together, and we can't do it alone. I already confessed to you that my vulnerability that I get caught up way too much when people get mad. That's really hard for me, you know? And that's a weapon that the enemy knows that he can use against me, and it'll draw me off sides. And so I'm, I'm gonna be vulnerable about that with you, and I want you to be vulnerable with one another. Because again, I think God believes that the church is the way in which he's going to advance the ministry and the mission until Christ comes home, right? And, and so if you need to join Prestonwood or you want to be baptized because God has already done a good work in your life, then come forward, grab the hand of one of our ministers or volunteers. But today needs to be the day of decision. Give your life to Jesus. If you've given your life to Jesus, then break free of whatever temptation is leading you into sin. Call that sin out. Drag it from the dark into the light. Let's let Jesus do what he can do. Join this church. Let's just respond and exercise faith believe that God wants to do something supernaturally here that couldn't be explained if it didn't belong to him. I'm going to pray when I say amen, we're going to stand and we're going to sing and it'll be our opportunity for invitation and worship response. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for who you are. Thank you for all that you've done. Father, I pray that you would continue to forgive my sin and cause us to be more like your son. God, I want to confess to you that the enemy's been knocking and there's been too many times when I tried to answer myself so Lord Jesus I want to invite you I want to trust you I want to lean more on you grow in dependence of you and I want you to have your way with me and our church
Father, thank you so much for Jesus not only earning our victory, but then standing beside us while we continue to fight. He showed us how. He's made it possible so we can. Would you give us the strength to be obedient to what we should do? And we love you and trust you and ask this in faith. We pray to you in Jesus' name. Amen.